If you're not using abort signals in your promises, your code is probably incorrect. Okay, for example, if you do promise.all and you have one of those things that throws an exception, you probably want to cancel all the other promises in that promise.all, unless you wanted to actually catch that exception and then return an aggregate error or whatever. Usually, if you have like a task that fails, you typically want to fail immediately with all these other tasks that are running and just clean them up. So the only way to really implement that cancel all of my parallel promises and clean them up is for them to implement abort signals. And it has to be propagated all the way down. So everything that can potentially do an await should actually be waiting contingent on some abort signal. If an abort signal happens in parallel while you're awaiting, you should stop awaiting and throw or cancel or bail out. This episode is brought to you by Square. Millions of businesses depend on Square partners to build custom solutions using Square products and APIs. When you become a Square Solutions partner, you get to leverage the entire Square platform to build robust e-commerce websites, smart payment integrations, and custom solutions for Square sellers. You don't just get access to SDKs and APIs. You get access to the exact SDKs and the exact APIs that Square uses to build the Square platform and all their applications. This is a partnership that helps you grow. Square has partner managers to help you develop your strategy, close deals, and gain customers. There are literally millions of Square sellers who need custom solutions so they can innovate for their customers and build their businesses. You get incentives and profit sharing. You can earn a 25% SaaS revenue share, seller referrals, product bounties, and more. You get alpha access to APIs and new products. You get product, marketing, tech, and sales support. And you're also able to get Square certified. You can get training on all things Square so you can deliver for Square sellers. The next step is to head to changelaw.com slash Square and click become a solutions partner. Again, changelaw.com slash Square. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. If you're new to the pod, don't forget to subscribe. Head to jsparty.fm for all the ways. And if you're a longtime party animal, thank you. We appreciate you listening. Check out our membership program at changelog.com slash plus plus. Drop the ads, get bonuses like extended episodes, and directly support the show. Thanks to our friends at Fastly for shipping JS Party all around the world to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, you know what time it is. It's party time, y'all. What's up, party people? I'm your host this week. I'm Nick Nisi. Hoi hoi. And I'm joined by Chris, aka Bone Skull. How's it going, Chris? Howdy. Welcome, welcome. And welcoming back to the show, we have Brett Combs. Hey, Brett, how's it going? Good. Welcome back. And we also have Mick Lysenko. Mick, how's it going? Pretty good. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. You guys were recently on uh, when we were talking about Socket and kind of the supply chain security that you're solving with that product. But we're going to talk about something different today. But uh, do you want to refresh us with a, a, an intro? Sure. Who should go first? Go ahead, Brett. Okay. I'm a JavaScript developer. I've been working mainly with Node, kind of out of the Node ecosystem since about, I don't know, 2014. 13, 2014, and do a lot of side projects and little contributions on little things that interest me around the ecosystem, and also professionally as a JavaScript developer for the most part. 
and I work at Socket now. So <laughs> check out the last episode we were on if you want to know more about that. We'll have a link in the show notes for that. Welcome back. And Mick, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I also have been working at Socket for the last six months or so. We've been building a bunch of infrastructure around analyzing JavaScript and just scanning NPM for suspicious packages and weird things and trying to turn all of that data into something that people can use to detect attacks on their open source projects or on their code that they're trying to ship to their users. Before that, I worked in China, not developing any malware or fixing malware, but on building a multiplayer online like 3D metaverse web game which turned out to be exactly the wrong thing to do after Chinese government regulations completely shut that entire sector down. And then before that, I was traveling around a lot, working on all kinds of different stuff. I lived in Hawaii for a bit, and I was in California before that. And then I was a grad student long, long ago, studying mathematics and computer stuff. So yeah, it's kind of like my story condensed into a nutshell. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, very exciting. That's a lot of uh, different exciting projects to work on. Now, as we mentioned, you were here a few a few weeks ago at this point talking about Socket and kind of supply chain security and the, the whole product around that. Well, today uh, we have you back to talk about a topic that was brought to us by the community, by Tarpon Jargon. So thank you for the recommendation on the show. And we're going to be talking about logging and error handling. So let's start off by talking about logging and just kind of digging into that. Does someone want to give a definition for what logging would be? I'll give it a shot. I, I wouldn't consider myself a huge expert on the matter, but anytime you're running a program and it encounters an error and it then presents that error in some context. So if it's like an unhandled exception, you'll often, you'll get the, the well-known stack trace coming out of your process. Or for, if it's like in the context of like a, a handled error, maybe you would see this like in a UI and a web app or maybe the CLI you're running like prints it with a contextualized stack trace for a human. Or if it's just sort of for a backend service, maybe it's a JSON line in a structured log that you're ingesting into Sentry or Datadog or something like that. Did I get that right? Did anyone else have any other context? I think logging is actually a pretty simple idea. It's just piece of code inside your code that acts as like a kind of trace of a discrete event. So it can be something that just is as simple as like printing out a statement when you reach a particular line, or it could be something more complicated that dumps like lots of state, or, you know, it could be very manual or it could be very automatic, but it's sort of like a form of tracing for your program. So rather than checking like every single instruction and everything that happens, you pick specific events that you care about. And then you throw in like a little uh, bit of code or whatever to try to like log that specific event out. And then eventually you get a single linear list of events that have happened. And hopefully you can stare at that and figure out what your program was doing <laughs> to figure out what just happened in your code, right? Yeah. So it's like a way that you can kind of like checkpoint what's going on in your code mentally and sanity check that it's like doing what you think it's doing. Yeah. Very well put, both of you. That's much more thorough than the definition for console.log that I was going to look up on MDN real quick. Yeah. So like that tends to be like when I think about logging, when I hear the term logging, that is what I immediately think of because that's what I do the most. And I, that's synonymous with debugging for me at this point. I recently was reminiscing about how I used to use the debugger so much more before 
TypeScript kind of made that a little redundant for me because I used to just pause on things to figure out what the heck I was actually typing or like what types of values I was actually passing around. But I don't have that so much anymore. So the things that I do the most now are just console log things to kind of debug my code. But then, you know, there's lots of different ways that you can go with with just talking about logging. And, you know, as you mentioned, you can just have like simple statements printed out to the console. You could be sending those logs somewhere else. You can provide different levels for logs so that you can kind of filter on maybe not seeing everything, only seeing more important things or what you might deem to be more important and so on from there. Yeah. Brett, you also mentioned the console or uh, the command line, like outputting logs. And and so like, since you, right. you invoked the command line, I'm going to invoke Chris to, uh, <clears throat> to talk about logging on the command line. What's the same or different? If I could jump in with another, another thing too, I think the happy path is actually where you just have like one process that's logging to the shell. But the actual like place where logging gets really nasty is when you have multiple concurrent processes running at the same time, mm-hmm. like many different services at once. And like the easy case of logging is usually when you have just like one single process with one thread that's handling events in a linear order, and you can log everything and reconstruct it. Where it becomes really chaotic is when the logs actually are like multiple processes that are running concurrently and then all kind of intermixed together. That's the fun logging, right? And that's usually where like when people talk about logging is hard, that's typically the case they're talking about. The happy path is usually not too bad, right? But I don't know. I would say it, it gets complicated even before then because the logging is like a, a cross-cutting concern, right? You may have 100 modules <laughs> and all 100 of those modules might need to log something. And so you're not going to want to like create a new logger for every module necessarily. And so maybe that's there are different ways people have attacked the problem. Like I think of something like... I think of something like aspect-oriented programming, which is not like a thing that anybody really recommends, but it's a way to do these sorts of cross-cutting concerns. And so just to give a definition of, of that, that's like AOP is like uh, wrapping a function or wrapping a call bef- and doing something before that call is happening. Is that kind of how you describe it? I don't even know the definition, but I do know that it enables you to like it's kind of like decorating things and yeah. sprinkling decorators around. And But the problem, I think, from what I understand, is is just that it makes your program really difficult to reason about because you don't know what code is running. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good example of the incidental complexity in logging. And it's mm-hmm. one of those things that happens because you do need to set up some kind of logging and you do typically want to have some way to kind of control it and turn it off. And like, while JavaScript does have built-in logging features, they're usually not adequate for like a larger program, right? Because console log, I mean, at least as it's interpreted by Node, just write something to standard out, right? And well, ultimately, most loggers just do that, right? I mean, now sometimes they have network logging and other things. There's still a lot of rules around how you turn things on and filter them or, you know, like namespace, different logging and stuff. The thing that does suck is that it's not really like interoperable, right? Like you can't just like, Say, ah, I want to swap out all the logging here with a different thing. You end up kind of stuck with whatever logging your dependencies have chosen as, a, as your own logging service. And this actually creates a ton of risk for most of the people downstream because there's no interoperability in the logging. Once you've committed to that logging system, you can't back out, like you can't swap it to a different thing. There's no general intermediate logging layer or whatever. 
which is why things like log4j, once they become inter, like once they sort of infect themselves into the ecosystem, you can't just rip them out, right? Like it's just everyone's going to use that thing, even though it's not doing anything that hard. It's just it has like it's standardized on that particular interface now, right? And so you have to keep going with that interface and you can't easily replace it. And so then if like log4j decides it's wants to go pick up some new capability, like, I don't know, just maybe run random Java files that it downloads from the internet. Now all of a sudden, everything using this goofy logging system is vulnerable to some cool shell injection attack, right? It's an unfortunate thing, right? That logging is not that interoperable. But I think this is a common problem with a lot of software systems, right? What would be like the, the most like, closely resembling analog to log4j in the javascript ecosystem would it be like something like the debug package or the debug logging package that a lot of things used to use or used to use maybe debug i mean we use debug at socket right because it's like next uses debug and next uses it because express and npm use it right and so it's like we've sort of been just kind of like debug became a standard because it was simply there first right and not that it's like anything great right or that the code's even that complicated like i guarantee most programmers who are reasonably like even if you've just gone through like a boot camp you could probably write your own logging system it's not that hard right the problem is that you have to like use that logging system everywhere and you certainly don't want to have two logging systems in your code that's far too many logging systems you only need one but you need it and you need to use it everywhere right and so you just have to standardize one of them so who gets to write the logging system? Well, it's like whoever got there first, they wrote the logging system and now we're all using it. <laughs> Are you doing any kind of more specific logging like on, you know, different projects that you work on? Is there some kind of base level sets of logging that you try and add? And what kind of things are you logging out? You know, it's situational because logging is like selective tracing. Like you could, in the like the limit, you could imagine an automatic tracer that just completely records the execution of every instruction and every statement in your program. And then you wouldn't even need to log anything. You could just replay that. But yeah. in practice, that's just too much data. So you usually like have a few things that you're looking at or that you know about, and you log those specific events. Like it might be you get a connection from a client or like a specific event is fired or some database transaction started or completed. That kind of stuff is what ends up getting logged. And it's not like there's an all or nothing thing with that. It's just a bunch of different stuff. I mean, but of course, you know, like we're talking about JavaScript and that ends up being like a web type thing. So the other thing is you often end up with like logging coming in from clients into your server because you also want to like log events from like different users' browsers, but then you also need to record them on your backend in some way and like try to correlate those events with what's going on in your server. One thing that I've noticed is like a lot of client logging systems place quite a bit of trust in the browser to run their code correctly. And so I've often wondered like why we don't see like sort of attacks on these logging systems more often, right? It seems to me like a pretty common vector. For example, like Sentry, you know, there's like a, a function where you can just embed it in a client and it can just like log random crap to the server, right? Why don't, you know, people just blow your Sentry quota by just putting like a for loop in the JavaScript console and log it? Why don't people do that? You can just like send <laughs> cute messages to the developers, be like, hello, I know. What don't you give did. them ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Don't give people ideas. But I mean, like, surely everyone's thought about this devious possibility, right? I mean, like, it seems like almost none of these logging systems do any kind of validation on the client side. In other systems, not like JavaScript, which are less dynamic, like I've seen C code bases do this. The number of things you can log on a client is explicitly enumerated, right? Like you just have like a lookup table 
of different strings and then you can just like log them. There's kind of like an internationalization type of thing. And so then you can't just like spam them with a bunch of stuff and you could always like rate limit a client if they're sending too many things. But as far as I know, a lot of the JavaScript logging stuff does nothing of this sort to ensure the integrity of untrusted code from the client. It's just anyone can log anything, which is also why log4j and these kind of things end up being really bad. Because if you have a Java backend and then like a JavaScript front end that's logging things that go to log4j eventually, all of a sudden your server's rooted now again. Oh no, right? What have we done? Why did we do this? I can't imagine why you keep bringing that up as an example. Right. <laughs> the worst thing to do if you're making like a CLI app is somebody starts using, like they type the command and then it says, okay, running error or something like that, or it just says nothing and it does nothing and you don't know what it's doing. So you're just kind of waiting. You don't want to do that. Like you really want to say like, all right, I'm working on it. Now, I mean, if you're piping things around, obviously you don't need a progress bar, but you're going to want something, some feedback for the user. If you don't have that, they might as well control C. Is it broken? Is it working? I don't know. Yeah. Anything that's going to take some time, you want to tell the user what's going on. So related to that, and specifically for the CLI, like this interesting thing that I've been thinking about as I like dabble with writing, mostly I'm writing them in Bash, but you know, they could be in JavaScript or something else. But when you're writing those out, do you think about whether you're going to send it to standard out or standard error? Yes. And how do you delineate what you send where? So basically, if the output of your program can be machine readable, uh -huh. so maybe you have like a JSON flag or something that says output JSON like NPM does, right? You could say mm -hmm. dash dash JSON. That should go to standard out. All your progress bars and all that nonsense should probably just go to standard error. Yeah. Do you think feel like including like just general like working on it dot 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 type message block like log messages should it also go to standard error? I would. The way that I think about it is like if it's something that I might want to pipe in somewhere else, then I want it to go to standard out. But if it's just like random, like, oh, you know, I've created a directory or whatever, that goes to standard error for me. Dang, I've been doing it wrong the whole time. If the output of your program <laughs> is a text file. Like, I don't know, Prettier does this, right? If you don't use dash dash write, Prettier just like dumps the prettified file to standard out. Then it doesn't, I mean, that's, that goes standard out, sure. It doesn't have to be like a JSON or XML or what have you. Browserify was another tool that did that early on or in the Node ecosystem was like. Yes. That was like a big, kind of one of the bigger differences between it and like Webpack at the time. That was one of the best parts of Browserify. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why don't the other build tools do that? It like it wouldn't even be hard for them to support it. It's just they just suck. Kinda is really what I could come to the conclusion. <laughs> of. Some of the newer ones are better, but <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Yeah, ES Build is good, but we know the one we're talking about that's not good. Right? <laughs> that's very popular, and it starts with the W and ends with the CK. Right. <laughs> Part of the reason is. I mean, yes, you can certainly add the feature, but you probably don't want to actually use it on like open source code because it's not portable. Mm -hmm. If you're dumping this standard out and then piping the things, that's not going to work in like command.exe, right? That's fine. I don't care about that. <laughs> Why do I care about command.exe? It's a command.exe is overrated. Not, no one runs anything in command.exe. There was a Twitter thread people were talking about like, What's the state of like Windows support? Like what's the minimum like thing you have to do to make sure they're happy? 
some people were including myself was suggesting like why not just expect everyone to use windows subsystem for linux mm -hmm. and i guess there's still a number of like things that don't work exactly correct in the linux compatibility layer like around like file watching and stuff like that so we're so close to like exact compatibility but but not quite there in some ways so yeah well and then there's also like the file path length limits and then the weird behavior with spaces <laughs> and casing and stuff it's just windows is, it doesn't work it just stop bothering with it i feel like people should just give up right i mean it's been long enough nothing works on it really so they have windows subsystem for linux so just stop doing the windows thing it doesn't it's done yeah but I mean, most JavaScript developers are using Windows, so we kind of have to think about them if we're making open source, right? <laughs> hey, and they can install Linux on their Windows using Microsoft TM Linux, right? Like, they can just go... If they know how to use Bash. We can teach them how, right? Microsoft. <laughs> There's probably like a little MSI installer you click or something, and then you get Linux, and there you go, right? Another like meta observation around like CLIs is that the sort of style of CLIs has changed a lot. It seems like over the last five or 10 years, when I like sort of was entering into this space, like people were still very much about like Unix philosophy, be silent unless explicitly asked for output and make sure that everything's pipeable by default, blah, 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 blah. And I think, I don't know where it exactly changed, but it seems like after Git, where you people got used to this very interactive CLI experience that's designed for less for you know machine piping like piping between pro, like Unix programs and more for just like general input for a human. It seems like you started seeing a lot more fancy CLIs and spinners and lots of text output and stuff like that too. So it seems like the some of the early best practices of in some sense have gone out of style in a way as well. So, Yeah, I do still think that that's a good philosophy, though. Just my own personal. I mean, it's good to support everything and kind of make everyone happy as best as you can, Yeah, depending on the context of what you're doing. So, Yeah, it's like, do you think of your shell as like a programming language or is more like an interactive user interface, right? And this is kind of a, a thing a lot of REPLs, I think, sort of struggle with. But mm -hmm. I would sort of characterize like the Unix style thing is really just a functional approach where it's like these commands are actually functions that take data or input and transform it from one state to another. And they're fundamentally like immutable. Like they just observe things and then they write something to standard out. And then where it goes from there, that's up to you. The other side is more like a, a mutable type of interface, right? Where it's more like an imperative mode type of operation where you're changing the state of your computer by sending commands to it. And so it's sort of mm -hmm. like a QBasic type of interface. And Git, even though it is ironically based on immutable data structures, works more like the latter. It is basically a mutable interface for your current Git repository, which is confusing because the Git commands are just actually changing state, right, when you're running that, you know, even though the actual Git repo is a functional data structure. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. They give software teams instant visibility into the quality and the performance of their software. And I'm here with John Daniel Trask, co-founder and CEO of Raygun. JD, talk to me about the joy a team feels when they're able to find and resolve an issue even before a customer has a chance to get upset or reach out to support about the issue. Talk to me about that. 
Well, I find it pretty exciting to be able to hit it off early. So, and being able to tell people that you resolved something, so maybe they come through, you know, and they do report an issue, and you can say, cool, well, we don't need to ask you for any more context. We've got all the details and we can have this fixed tomorrow. It turns an at-risk customer into an absolute raving advocate. So that's a huge win. And then the other thing that was a little bit embarrassing, we launched Raygun, but we had these other products and we instrumented them. And that's when we realized that less than 1% of our users would ever actually report a problem. And so you're sitting there thinking your software is actually not bad. And actually, <laughs> it's really, really bad. And that's hurting all of your conversion rates, business performance. You know, these aren't really dev tools. They're actually business tools. All right. If you want to see how this dev tool impacts the entire business, head to raygun.com to learn more and start your 14-day free trial. No credit card required. Join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day to deliver flawless experiences to their customers. Again, raygun.com. During the break, we were talking about how whether we were just, I was sort of posing the idea, is there a big difference between like CLI logging where you're providing context to a user versus logging for a backend service that's sort of shooting out structured like log lines that's getting collected in some kind of log database like, you know, Datadog or, or Logris or whatever. And I think Chris said there, you could actually do it in both. You do both at the same time in some contexts. So. Yeah, so these, I don't know, some of these newer tools, right? I suspect some of them do this. I don't really build web apps, but I know there are fancy tools out there that will let you, say, run a development server, right? And they'll also, like, bundle your code. So maybe even Webpack does that sort of thing, right? I don't know if it does it out of the box. So on the one hand, you've got the serve mode where you've, now you're like logging HTTP calls, but then you also have like the bundle mode where it shows you the files and the package size and all that garbage. So like you can have a tool that does both. The project I'm working on now, Appium, does both. It has like a, like a tool, CLI tool component to help you install and manage like plugins, but then it also is mainly just a server. And so there's like two kinds of logging going on. Do they end up using different like service, like tools for both contexts or is there like a unified library that does kind of both styles of logging? No comment, but it, okay. <laughs> that's a pain point at the moment. Okay. <laughs> yeah. This is one of those things where it's like the design of Unix is probably holding us back a little bit, right? Like, uh, I mean, this type of thing happens all the time. Like, for example, Next does this, and pretty much every large web project I've ever worked ends up in the same kind of situation where, like, again, like you say, your development environment, maybe you're running TypeScript and Webpack and a bunch of these other things which have, like, a little watch mode. And then the watch mode has, like, one style of formatting, and then you also have your web server, and then maybe any subservices for that web server. And then all those logs are just getting dumped into one big stream. And, you, you know, good luck sorting that mess out. <laughs> Here you go, buddy. Right. Mm -hmm. You can do stuff like, OK, you just open up multiple shells and then you have to manually start every single one of these processes and each of its like little shells and then you can switch between them. But I mean, like in a more perfect world, wouldn't it be nice if it could just like open multiple shells for you automatically and you could just have multiple output streams that could be redirected in there? I think there's probably like some Unix tool that sort of does that for you to like parallel execute them. But it's like. 
it would be nice if there was something like a little more baked into the way like shells worked that allowed you to like have more than two default output streams, right? You only have your standard out and standard error, but why can't you have more? I don't know. Well, you only get two, so deal with it, right? You could script all of that with Tmux and then just have it. You open could, it. yeah. Separate splits. I was going to say, we need like a Tmux logger where you just page between the different outputs yeah. and streams. Yeah, you can set it up, right? But it becomes like kind of awkward because then you have to make sure that your tools sort of decompose in some way. And like, what if it is really like some more integrated thing where, you know, you're running like some modified version of ES build that knows something about your web server or whatever. It's, it would be nice if it was sort of like... Uh, like kind of built into the interface, right? Because you can mm -hmm. open up multiple shells. There are multiple TTYs that exist. You just have to open up different files or something. It's always like kind of clumsy doing this. I, I don't know. I feel like there's probably a potential for innovation there. Someone can figure out a nicer way to handle that and it would be cool. I could certainly try to make a piece of JavaScript that did that. But I'm not going to go hack on a shell. That could be cool. Maybe. I mean, but the thing is, like, then it has to kind of integrate with your actual terminal emulator in some way, right? I mean, or maybe you could just right. open up multiple TTYs or something. So I don't know what the right solution would look like for that. Yeah, I don't I don't want to get into the weeds on that. But I am definitely, like, being nerd sniped. Like, ooh, I want to go check that out and see what, what that would look like. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it could be done. What about other tools? Maybe that's what Next should, Next should do it. Whatever it is, like, their terminal thing should just have the ability to, like, not put it all in one giant unreadable stream. Because the output is actually completely useless from, like, the Next terminal debug log. It's just, it's like everything is, like, smooshed together, right? And it's like, I, I don't even know. So I don't even look at it. It's useless to me. Yeah, that is maybe where you make the decision to then just build a like some custom log viewer in Electron or something to yeah. <laughs> to look at it all, or maybe one of these newer shell or terminal emulators like Warp or something starts building it. I was going to ask: Does anyone have any experience with like more advanced logging? I'm trying to think of like uh, apps or or logging utilities that well, that. I think it's a mistake to call more complicated logging advanced because that like implies that, ah, we should all be doing that. And the answer is no, sure. don't do it if you can avoid it, right? Like yeah. keep your logging simple. Simple logging is advanced logging. Complicated logging is just complicated. It's not advanced. It's bad if you have to do it, right? So like, don't like try to bait people into making it more advanced, please. Like no more advanced logging. Advanced logging is how we get log4j. Do we need another log4j? <laughs> no, don't make it more advanced. Make it simpler. <laughs> There's maybe one avenue that maybe would be considered more advanced, which is like structured logging. So yeah. like rather than just dumping random strings of unformatted strings to whatever standard out or it's standard. You console.group them, right? No, I mean like I'm thinking more like a Pinot library where you know, you, it has like a little API and like you <laughs> pipe data into like with objects and it like formats it consistently and can enforce things like having a transaction ID like in the log line. And so in theory, if you're disciplined about this, you could like search for a transaction ID in a, like a log pi, like a big stash of logs in a logging service and see like a transaction move across different like services but again, typically when you have multiple services in a big org or project, it means multiple people. So getting everyone to like follow that pattern consistently becomes the challenge. It becomes a people problem at that point. So yeah, 
And also, if you want to do like analysis, you know, it, like at some point, like if your system gets complicated enough, then your logs start picking up schemas, right, in order to make them parsable <laughs> yeah. or whatever. And then it's just like, uh... I got a question <laughs> for my do not want <laughs> for my socket buddies. Yes. So what do you use for logging then? How do you go about it? You use debug. You don't like consume like a third party service or anything like that. I could talk about a few things that we do. I do think we need a little bit more discipline in this area, but debug is kind of like the basic tool that we use for like, if we want to see what a particular part of the code path is doing specifically in a log format, like we'll use that. Some of the things that the service does log to standard out and some of it actually like saves things to a database and a transaction. So we've kind of like a few different approaches to it. I think it's it's something that has seems like it's grown organically and probably at some point in the future we probably need to visit this and yeah. be a little bit more intentional about it. But we're still pretty early on, so <laughs> Yeah. So for most like kind of development, we use debug for logging because it's the same thing that Next uses and all of our other stuff in NPM uses. So we're just kind of like stuck with that unless we want to create another debug equivalent, which we don't. So we use that. And I think if you're working in Node and you're working and using a lot of projects built in NPM, you pretty much end up having to use debug. And that's just the way the world is right now. Besides that, we do use like some more sort of like structured logging for specific events we need to do analytics on or querying. So these are things where like they have some kind of like business impact or there's something we like need to measure later on. So for we like collect like certain profiling data in our SQL database that we then can do like sort of aggregate. It's like, okay, like what analysis is taking too long or for things like GitHub events, like webhooks and stuff, we have to log those, right? But those are actually needed for correctness because we have to like sometimes replay a webhook, right? If it like, if something crashed in the middle or the GitHub API timed out or whatever, right? And then we have to retry it. When you do stuff like that, do you, are you like putting queries in your code base and just firing them off or? Yeah. Yeah. We've been using um, JSON B fields for kind of catch all yeah. columns and some of those logs. I mean, I would say the main difference between the two approaches too is like one is very intentional and like one is kind of more haphazard. So like logging with debug is like, I'm just logging what's happening right here at this line. Whereas when we are capturing things into our database, it's like, like I want to collect this data very specifically and be able to like query it later. And this sort of structured logging idea that I'm throughout earlier is kind of a middle ground. It's kind of like, you know, debug, just to catch anyone up who doesn't know about the debug package, it's basically, it's kind of like console.log, but you turn it on with an environment variable and each, each file has to set up like a little namespace and you can filter which files are logging essentially. It doesn't enforce anything about like what's in the log Structured logging, like a structured logger, like Pino or whatever, like you kind of feed it data objects and then it formats it in like very specific formats. So there's like a development view. So for humans and then JSON for like a log aggregate service like Datadog or, or um, Elasticsearch and stuff like that. So that would be kind of the middle ground between the two, I think. Yeah. I mean, also I could say one other thing. Too, which is the last project I worked on used a completely crazy like logging system that was not based on anything like debug or whatever, right? But that was because we wrote our entire web stack from scratch, right? So it was like a JavaScript project, but 
we had like a schema based thing. And it was also because it was like an online browser game. So everything worked in a very different way. And the performance requirements were very different from a typical web app. So we use like almost like no existing NPM package. It was all written from scratch. So like there's many ways to do this, you know, in practice, just kind of figure out what works. Yeah. What of like metrics, like things you'd, you'd shoo off and look at in Grafana or something like that, right? Yeah. For that kind of like, you know, performance measurement, like for those kind of analytics things, I think they kind of break into two categories. We have ones which are sort of defined by like some business like use case, right? Like, you know, measuring the performance of some task or whatever, where we do the logging ourselves in the database and then we can query it our own way. And then for other stuff, which are like more standardized, like Google Analytics type of stuff, we just use like an off-the-shelf analytics package. And then that does its own metrics collection. And it just has its own system for doing that. And we don't even touch it. Have you ever used a tool that like does like full, I'm thinking back to web apps now, but like full session recording Mm -hmm. where you can basically replay everything that a user's done and then debug it from there? I mean, I played around with like the Datadog one and like the real user monitor or real user monitoring tools. The RUM, yeah. Yeah, which is really cool. But I haven't ever had a sort of a chance to really like, like really fully play. I just kind of demoed it, you know. I haven't actually like used it to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know Heap has a, a a product that does this as well. There's a couple of, there's a bunch of different options now for this. I've used like Matomo extensively in the past, but I find that like for the, it depends on the application though, like, when we're working on doing sort of like the game stuff, you know, they were working on the sessions were very, very long and there were a lot of events. So it wasn't really very feasible to do like a full replay with all of the WebGL stuff and everything uh, across multiple browsers and make that work in any kind of like reasonable way. So we just did that. We just collected more like aggregate statistics from users and that kind of thing. We didn't try to like get detailed sessions because we had like millions of players, right? It wasn't really feasible to collect all that data yeah and for like longer running things like that that's a good example of when you might not want to do that and kind of be more selective in what you're grabbing but if you know that you have kind of more short-lived sessions that can be a valuable way to kind of debug things later and you can i'm sure there's tools i've heard about them on you know in ads and stuff about being able to when this error occurred send the state of the application along with it so that you know exactly what happened and you can kind of build that in and reproduce it Mm -hmm. from there which is pretty cool So that kind of touches into air handling. So we're going to take a break and then we'll be back to talk more in depth about air handling. We are going to ship three, two, one. I'm Kahal Zhu, host of Ship It, a show with weekly episodes about getting your best ideas into the world and seeing what happens. We talk about code, ops, infrastructure, and the people that make it happen, like charity majors from Honeycomb. We act like great engineers make great teams, and it's exactly the opposite, in fact. It is great teams that make great engineers. And they Farley, one of the founders of Continuous Delivery. Start off assuming that we're wrong rather than assuming that we're right. Test our ideas, try and falsify our ideas. Those are better ways of doing work. And it doesn't really matter what work it is that you're doing. That stuff just works better. We even experiment on our own open source podcasting platform so that you can see how we implement specific tools and services within changelog.com, what works and what fails. 
It's like there's a brand new hammer and we grab hold of it and everyone gathers around. We put our hand out and we <laughs> we strike it right on our thumb. And then everybody knows that hammer really hurts when you strike it on your thumb. I'm glad those guys did it. I've learned something. Instead, yeah. I think that's a very interesting perspective, but I, I don't see that way. Okay. It's an amazing analogy, but I'm not sure that applies here. Listen to an episode that seems interesting or helpful. And if you like it, subscribe today. We'd love to have you with us. All right. So in the last session, we talked about logging and kind of started segueing into air handling and kind of seeing that. So let's kind of more formally talk about air handling and some of the best practices around that. And I know everyone on this panel has strong opinions about air handling. So let's start with a definition. Mick, do you want to give us a definition? Errors or like exceptions? Yeah, air handling. I, I don't know. It's kind of a vague. Yeah, error is a weird thing, right? In JavaScript. Yeah. It's a very special object, right? And it's the only way that I know of anyway at runtime that you can actually reflect over the stack of a program. But basically, like exceptions, which are the actual thing that's kind of interesting in JavaScript, they're just a kind of non-local control flow feature. So if you throw an exception, you'll go up your call stack to the point where the exception was ultimately caught in a try-catch block. Or it'll just go right to the top of the event loop and then crash and print something to your standard out or wherever. And, you know, handling these exceptions is, of course, something that everyone needs to know about if they're writing code in JavaScript. You also have to think about this when you're dealing with promises because that makes it a little bit more subtle where these exceptions ultimately bubble out. And I'm sure everyone's seen this uncaught promise rejection warning if you've ever done anything async. But yeah, it's just part of the language. You have to know how it works if you want to write code. And it can be useful in a few places. And we have a bunch of modern goodies with our errors now. Yeah, it's true. It used to be simpler. It used to be there were just thrown exceptions. And in fact, they did. you don't even have to like throw an error. You can throw anything in JavaScript mm-hmm. and it'll go up your call stack to wherever you caught it, right? You can throw a string. You can throw a number. You can even throw null. It doesn't matter. You can throw whatever you like. <laughs> you, know? you can throw a promise. I've learned that. You can throw promises. You can throw whatever <laughs> you want, right? And it doesn't care. But the error object is a special thing that you can throw, right? And you should usually use the error when you throw it because the error will give you a stack trace. And that stack trace tells you like what called the code that actually triggered that original exception or object or whatever to be thrown up the stack. Mm -hmm. And that is actually the useful part of errors, right? Is that they can capture stacks. Nick, you threw a promise. What, you catch it and then like resolve it? (laughs) You catch it. Check and see if it's been resolved and then rethrow it. And this is called suspense. Really? That's how it works? Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Is that a good idea? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Anything's a good idea if it works. <laughs> yeah. Mocha abuses throw. If you say to skip in your function body of like a, a hook or a test, if you say this.skip, it throws. It will not run anything after that skip, but it throws a special object called a pending, and we just catch the pending. It's not an error, but uh, it just it throws a thing. And of course, it's uh, hypocritical, because if you try to throw something that isn't an error in Mocha, in your tests, it complains and says throw an error instead of whatever you just threw. But we don't follow our own advice, right? Do as I say. Yeah. I've seen that in other packages too. Like when like I hook them up to like um some kind of like APM, 
that, you know, logs out errors and you start seeing like errors coming out of a module bureau that's not crashing your service. You're like, what's going on here? Like, oh, it's talking to itself through errors. Yeah, many packages do this. It, it, like, this is a thing that we've kind of realized uh, by just doing a lot of static analysis. So one thing is uh, uh, throw makes static analysis in JavaScript so, so, so much harder than it would be otherwise. It's already a dynamic language. So like resolving into, you know, like a piece of code, like trying to like figure out the points to analysis and all of the symbol binding and everything, that's not easy. But then when you're trying to build like the control flow graph, taking into account that anything can throw pretty much. And when it throws, it doesn't just return to where it threw. It can just go further up, right? If you were to actually put all of like the control flow links for every piece of code, it's like almost any piece of code can like just somehow non-locally jump to any other piece of code when you take into account exceptions, right? So in practice, most things that do static analysis or try to optimize JavaScript, just pretend that that case doesn't happen or don't worry about it and deal with it in a different way. And V8 is the same way about this too, right? Like V8 would not be able to optimize your JavaScript code if it was really doing crazy stuff like jumping around with throws all over the place. And um, this actually is like a demonstrable thing where if you start putting a lot of try-catch blocks in your code and using throws, you'll find that you fall off a performance cliff in V8 where it's often way slower if you're using exceptions than if you're not using exceptions. Because the happy path where you're not using exceptions, you have a very simple, easily analyzable control flow graph that can be statically understood and optimized. And the moment you throw exceptions into this thing, that graph just becomes shattered into a million tiny little fragments of JavaScript everywhere, right? And it's like, oh God, nothing can be done anymore. And then you're just sort of stuck, right? With like doing dynamic interpretation. <laughs> Am I hurting myself by using suspense then? Probably, but if it works, it's okay, right? I mean, you know, it's probably not that much slower, right? <laughs> or maybe it, it's not slow in a way that matters. Yeah. Have you ever like worked on or seen a code base that actually just decided for performance reasons not to throw and instead like returns errors yes. from functions? Yeah. 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 I mean, at the, on the last project I worked on before socket, which was basically a game that ran in a browser, we sort of banned exceptions pretty much because they're just really too slow. You shouldn't use them ever. Mm. I wonder if it's improved at all since then. I mean, last I really looked at this carefully, which was a couple of years ago, it was pretty bad, right? And I think it's not improved much because I was actually looking at a performance issue in our analysis on Socket. And currently, like about 5% of all of our CPU time is spent in the node semver <laughs> package, just calling like the semver test satisfies function or whatever. And just looking at like, well, why is that slow? Well, guess what semver does under the hood? Lots of try catch, lots of exceptions, right? <laughs> so I haven't finished, you know, digging into this particular issue, but there's a part of me that's like, hmm, maybe I need to fork node semver and just remove all of those exceptions. <laughs> this is like a surprising point for node style callback programming which did not use exceptions yeah <laughs> we're never going back though it's not going to happen no 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 no, no. <laughs> look i'm not going back to callbacks promises are great you know but we have a new style callback for async await style programming which is correct yeah now callbacks do make exceptions a lot more interesting and the other thing that's also kind of profound about callbacks or promises that i think people didn't fully understand when they created them at first is that Exceptions, they sort of come from the bottom of your call stack and they go up. But when you're working with promises, sometimes it's useful to send an exception in the opposite direction, from the top of your call stack down. 
and this is where abort signals come in. And unfortunately, the first version of Promises did not have abort signals built in, and it's not an automatic thing. So you have to do a lot of plumbing. And the way they end up working looks a lot like manually returning error codes, unfortunately. But you kind of have to know about them and then fix them, or else you're going to have problems with your Promise code, right? Yeah. So maybe let's define what uh, abort signal is and start from there. Yeah. Abort signals are basically like a dual of an exception. They're a type of an event, right? Which in the sort of concurrent programming parlance is like uh, sort of like a synchronization primitive where you can signal it and then it fires once and then you can, there's sort of two APIs, right? It has like a signal where you can fire the event and then there's like a wait that basically waits until the event has uh, completed. And you can use events to implement things like barriers or other types of synchronization. But Basically, it's sort of like a, a one-way channel, if you know about Go, where you can just put one message into it, and then it pops out the other side. So it's a, it's a sync primitive, right? And abort signals, there's actually two sides of an abort signal. There's an abort signal and an abort controller. So all you can do with the abort signal is you can just wait until it was aborted, right? And then when it's aborted, it'll fire an event that you can then handle in your code, or you can also just pull the abort signal to check if it's already aborted, basically. And so where this would be useful is if you have like a long running promise or uh, some other task that needs to be canceled and basically you wanna stop that task from running, right? So the abort controller, you can fire a signal that cancels the abort signal that is associated to that abort controller. And then everything that's waiting on that abort signal will get a little message saying, hey, stop what you're doing, abort, clean up, Stop, show's over, pack up your stuff, go home, right? And where this was initially created was in the fetch API, right? So this was not actually a thing that shipped with promises in the beginning. But it was basically in fetch, it used to be there were like a million different ways that you could try to like abort it. And this is partly because it tried to copy the older XML HTTP request API. So you could do stuff like set a timeout, set a retry, you know, set like there are all these like different special conditions and they were just like, different flags and configuration parameters where you would try to like enumerate all of the click cases where this thing should stop. And then in the case of the XHR, there was also just like this sort of catch-all method where you could call dot abort on the XHR and it would stop. And so fetch initially was trying to replace the XHR API with something that's using promises. That's And it's better, right? Like you should use fetch. But it took them a couple of iterations to get this right because with promises, initially there wasn't an easy way to just like abort the fetch, right, uh, after you've already fired one off. So after like a bunch of discussion and maybe like a year or back and forth on news groups and you can look online. I mean, I was not involved in this process. I'm merely a bystander just eating popcorn watching this play out, right? Eventually, abort signal was uh, sort of proposed as the solution for this. And the way you make a fetch abortable was you just pass an abort signal into the fetch object and then it'll handle that abort signal and when it's done, you know, it'll cancel the fetch, right? And that's much more flexible because you can cancel this, you know, if your fetch was initiated by some other promise or whatever, and you decide you want to cancel it, then you can just kill all the fetches at once, right? So it's, it's a better API, and it took a while to get it, and it started in fetch. But it turns out that this concept is not just useful for fetch, but you should really be using abort signals in every promise that you write, almost guaranteed. Like if you're not using abort signals in your promises, your code is probably incorrect, okay? Like for example, 
if you do promise.all and you have one of those things that throws an exception, you probably want to cancel all the other promises in that promise.all unless you wanted to actually catch that exception and then return an aggregate error or whatever. But usually if you have like a task that fails, you typically want to fail immediately with all these other tasks that are running and just clean them up, right? So the only way to really implement that kind of cancel all of my parallel promises and clean them up is for them to implement abort signals. And it has to be propagated all the way down. So everything that can potentially do an await should actually be waiting contingent on some abort signal. If an abort signal happens in parallel while you're awaiting, you should stop awaiting and throw or cancel or bail out, right? You, I mean, so bold claims, right? So the, <laughs> the yes. if you're using promises, what if I'm just doing something like an FS write file? Right. Then you can even just do it sync. You don't even need at that point, like, yeah, sure. You just don't care about the exception. It's the same way, like, do you need to catch every exception that's thrown? Well, if you're writing Java, yeah, you do. But yeah, sometimes you can just let your program die, right? But you know, or sometimes like it's a command line tool if it goes in an infinite loop, which is actually the duel of dying, right? Is basically it gets stuck in like a long running promise. You can just control C it and kill the process and restart everything, right? But that said, sometimes abort signals are needed to even make control C work because you might be stuck on something that can't even handle the control C signal, right? So to even handle a control C signal correctly, you might actually want to use an abort signal there. So if you want to keep your process around for a longer period of time, it becomes increasingly more important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like if you're writing like any kind of persistent service, you need to be using abort signals pretty much everywhere. In a CLI, your control C is kind of your built-in abort signal. <laughs> right. Yeah. But sort of. the thing is that, well, yeah, but sometimes it doesn't work. Then you have to control Z and then kill dash 9% one or whatever and nuke the thing that way, right? If it's not really aborting. I have used abort signal with fetch and I know that you just pass it in as like, I think it's like a signal property mm -hmm. that you pass, but you can just use it with normal promises. I have an example. This was kind of like the moment that clicked with me with abort signals was um, with promises and async await programming, doing control flow and concurrency limiting code is a little mm -hmm. bit different than like with callbacks or just, just plain promises where you typically use like a little API wrapper that does all the control flow stuff in, in the middle, like run all, but limit to five or whatever. If you wanted to try to move towards a more, I guess, literal programming style with async await and doing concurrency control, there's a great pattern that I I'm turned on to recently called semaphores, which I guess... I guess other language people, like other language ecosystems that like, you know, have had these for ages, but they're kind of new to JS and because of async await. So abort controllers work really well with semaphores because you can pass the abort controller in, or abort signal into the semaphore creation. And when your promise.all array or whatever is waiting on like the different semaphores to like open up and let like the, the new tasks start, they can actually be listening on this and like abort out of those before those other tasks or promises have even started. So it fits really well with that style of programming. I don't know if that translates to a spoken podcast, if that makes any sense, but look up semaphores and abortable semaphores for a good example of like how these kind of like work into a more general async await workflow. So yeah. Did that make? Did I get that right, Mick? I don't know. Um, well, yeah, we'll, we'll sort of. It's fine. <laughs> I'm kind of a semaphore noob myself, so I'm still learning about like how to describe them correctly. I've used them once in like C back in college for like one 
one programming example or homework file that I had to like do something with multiple threads, I think. And it was ensuring that only one thread was writing to a file at a time, I think. And looking at this example, I'll put in the show notes, but it, it's kind of like that where you, you use the, you create a lock from the semaphore and then you can acquire the lock and then release the lock. So you can acquire it to do something and it ensures that nowhere else will be able to do that and then release it later. I'm not sure I'm following how in JS, essentially you, uh, you await the lock. Okay. And essentially right. you do that like in a promise dot all style context yeah. or something similar. Yeah. And like, it seems like you're starting all your promises all at once, but really they're going to like fire off in whatever control flow pattern that your semaphore is configured for. So, yeah. So a semaphore is kind of like a generalization of a lock. It's instead of just one lock, it's a, a counter. So it can actually be used to allow more than one thread to go into the critical section or share a resource or whatever. So it's basically like a synchronized counter and you can sort of wait until the counter is greater than zero, and then you can enter a critical section. Mm -hmm. But I think the general concept of having abortable synchronization primitives is a bigger deal than just semaphores. It just happens that in our code, we use a lot of semaphores because whenever you have to do any kind of concurrency control or synchronization in a long-running process, maybe this is my own personal bias, I just end up reaching for semaphores most of the time because I find them to be the easiest to work with and understand. But other people you know, like things like monitors or whatever. You could do it if you like. The general concept, though, is if you're waiting using promises, you need to allow for aborting when you do the wait to synchronize because the aborting is what allows you to, like, not get stuck in a deadlock on that, like, wait, and you just end up with this kind of dangling promise or something sitting around, right? So, like, you need to have the abortable concurrency primitives, right? And they could be promises or they could be locks, they could be semaphores, they could be whatever, right? But yeah, but semaphores are very useful if you do anything where you want to like limit the number of threads running. And like you could use it for a critical section, but you could also use it as just like a general throttle. Like say you have like a bunch of different tasks that are all kind of running and you don't want to run more than like five of them at once or something. You can just have everything wait on a semaphore that's initialized to five. And then when they're done with their critical section, they signal and let the next thread go through, right? And you can have like a global semaphore that you can use to dial up or down the amount of concurrency you want to allow those tasks to have. For example, like if you're hitting the GitHub API, right, and GitHub is rate limiting you because you don't want to have too many threads hitting it at once from the same worker. So you put a semaphore on there to like throttle the number of threads hitting it at the same time. Some real-time feedback. I just grepped for abort controller and abort signal in my code base, and I am apparently doing promises very wrong because it's not in there once. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> you might want to take a look at that. <laughs> yeah. For like a single-threaded promise where it just kind of goes from top to bottom, maybe it's excusable. But for example, say you have like a... Here's another place where this would be useful. If you have like a web server and you're handling your request in a promise, then say the incoming request like times out or the client disconnects or whatever, right? Then you might want to use the abort controller to fire a signal down to all of the promises in that handler to tell them like, hey, stop whatever you're doing, right? Don't waste any more resources handling this request. Let's get back to business and just like stop that, right? So your server doesn't just end up kind of going into this loop where it's like, oh, you know, I got to handle this request for a guy who's already like left to go get a sandwich or, you know, pieced out from your page, right? So mm -hmm. that's one place where it's very useful. 
Another very concrete place too is not even in the request handler, but going like a little more granularly down in a React component. Sometimes when a component mounts, it doesn't have all the state immediately. So like when you mount a component, like say you click to a tab and it starts loading a bunch of stuff, you might initiate a bunch of requests to like download like different media or other things that is needed just by that component, right? But suppose like a user clicks open a tab, right? Starts downloading a bunch of data, but then they're like, ah, I go to another tab, right? But now you have this like dangling kind of request or promise or whatever that could be doing some heavy work in the background there. So what you probably want to do is have a hook that creates an abort signal, right? And then when the component unmounts, the unmount controller or the unmount hook will basically fire off the abort signal and kill all those promises that respond by mounting that component, which is another very common pattern that we have in our code, right? So like if you navigate to some page or whatever, it starts loading some stuff, then you say, ah, it's loading too slow, click somewhere else, right? Because I have like the attention span of a goldfish thanks to YouTube and social media, right? And so like I go to the next thing and then, okay, well, my computer is still running all these stupid promises in the background from that. So just kill them using the abort controller, right? Once you realize like, oh yeah, I should be doing that. Like it's all of a sudden very obvious that like you really need to be using these things everywhere top to bottom, right? And it's unfortunate because, you know, like at least with exceptions, like there's kind of built-in like language stuff to try to help you propagate an exception up a stack, right? So like one way of thinking about it, if you like want to use scary functional programming stuff is like, there's sort of like a built-in monad for exceptions, like a built-in maybe monad that's like throws or whatever. But what you really want for abort controllers and promises is actually like a co-monad that can actually stick abort controllers onto everything, right? That's probably how it should you be. You want to throw down. Like- exactly. We're throwing down, <laughs> not up, right? So basically... Abort controllers are like exceptions that go down rather than up. Stop, stop. Stop. What are you doing? (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) You can't say that anymore because you can't say like shoot the thing in the head, but that's too violent, right? So you can't hit the promises anymore, but you have to throw something down to them to tell them to stop. I don't know what's the more peaceful way to say this now. I don't know what's the... Mick. Yeah. When you abort and you end up catching an abort signal uh, throw... Is there a way to add additional context to where it aborted? Haha, thank you for asking that question. And I think I know why. Because, yeah, it used to be one of the worst parts about abort signals is that it just says, I aborted. I don't know what happened, right? And it doesn't actually tell you why it aborted. And so this is, you know, like with an exception, right? An exception can give you a, like some like little context or reason about why you aborted or why it threw, right? And you get a stack Abort signals don't give you a stack trace down, which is kind of like annoying, although we have some hacks to sort of fix that in our own code base. But the bigger issue is that it used to be they would just say, I aborted and don't tell you why. Now this has been fixed. There's now a reason field for an abort signal. So in the newest version of Node, Node 18, so you have to be running Node 18, you can pass a little string or something into the abort reason, and then your abort controller will know like why it aborted, right? And you can check that reason when you abort, and then you'll actually get some context as to why it aborted, which is very useful for troubleshooting abort signals, and you should absolutely use that. However, it only works in Node 18, so if you're not running Node 18, good luck. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it does work in modern browsers now, but it does not work in older Node. <laughs> so this is a good reason to upgrade. <laughs> the killer feature of Node 18 is abort controller reasons. <laughs> and built-in fetch. Yes, built-in fetch too. Maybe that will be the thing that gets me off of Node 14. 
Yeah, I think this. if you start using them, you'll probably find that, like, uh, I wish it had that reason field. Another thing we could talk about, too, similar to the reason field. In a, is it called reason? Yes, reason. Okay. Error constructors now have an optional cause field in their options object. So you can, like, catch a, a throw and then add more context by creating a new error with a cause of the caught error, which is, like, also very super helpful. Although maybe it goes against this don't try catch everywhere if you're cared about critical performance, but, or maybe V8 can just fix that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe V8 is better now. I like, cause again, all these performance things, they're only kind of relative to whatever V8 is doing at the time that I last looked at it, which probably could have changed, right? I haven't checked it before this thing yet. So I, maybe I should double check that. I don't know. So with CLI apps, Stop throwing stacks, okay? Like, Git is written in what? I don't know. Probably C. Probably C++. Right? I don't really care. People don't... They shouldn't, like, care what language your CLI tool is written in. You don't care necessarily, like, what language any of your desktop apps are written in. Nobody cares about that stuff. If you're throwing stacks and they're there in front of the user, they're not really actionable by the user other than maybe a nice one will copy and paste that into a GitHub issue. But if you know that it, there's like an exception that's going to potentially happen, you want to catch that and you want to explain to the user in nice language like this is why it broke. Like I couldn't write to this file. I don't have permissions. You don't need to just throw and, and dump a stack trace because nobody should ca have to care about that. Nobody should have to, like, in a perfect world, nobody should care that your CLI app is written in Node. And nobody should care that there's, like, a source file or something, right? So that's my spiel. I can agree with that, generally. Unless your app was written in Java, then I do care. <laughs> I was going to say, or Electron. Because it's going to have rod for j <laughs> Folks really care about whether it's a, written in Electron or not. I remember having a really hard time reading Python stack traces coming out of Python CLIs. I'm not sure. Yeah, they're backwards. They're backwards. Yeah, I think that was the thing. It was like, how do I read this? It was um, confusing. They're backwards. But I have to imagine like, if a Python developer looks at a stack trace from a Node app, they're probably like, what is this? What order is this in? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't need to see Python stack traces Like, if a Python tool breaks. That sort of thing is probably like a language culture type of thing but i don't know the only time i might want to see a stack trace is if like the cli is actually running javascript that i wrote and like there's an error i kind of want to see the stack use debug like in dev mode for sure use debug yeah okay yeah just like have a verbose or a, a you know log levels and all that junk and then you can see the Stack trace. What do you think is the real harm in having a stack, right, for users? Like, is it just kind of like an aesthetic thing? Like, this looks ugly and therefore, like, we shouldn't have it? Or is it, like, confusing to people in some way, right, that maybe we should try to give them an affordance? It could be confusing it, it, all of these reasons. It's just not unnecessary, I think. If debugging the node, uh, the JavaScript code isn't the purpose of the error, then it that probably definitely shouldn't be there by default, at least. Yeah. I mean, as a developer, I love getting good stack traces when my code crashes, <laughs> right? And it often crashes on other people's computers. So it's nice if they can send me the stack trace back, right? 
but at the same time, I mean, like it would be better if my code just didn't crash, but maybe they should find a better programmer to write it then. This is sort of philosophically <laughs> where I come to. <laughs> All right. If an exception is uncaught and unexpected, Node does a thing with that. So there will be a stack trace. Uh, and you should know with throwing exceptions in, in tools, you need to know who your audience is. So if your audience is just somebody using the tool, you probably don't need to do it. But if, say, you have a CLI tool and that CLI tool accepts plugins or something, that plugin author might want to know. And so, you know, wherever this exception is going to get thrown, you need to know, like, who it's for. I think where these kind of, like, always do something weird is when there's, like, a for like regular CLI tools where they just crash and then print an exception to standard error, I usually find that not too annoying. But like if there's some kind of weird curses, GUI thing, or like some crazy X thing, then it's not so good. The other thing too is also like a lot of libraries are really chatty, right? Like if you notice like 3JS, right? Like it loves to announce like, hey, I'm 3JS and I'm running on this web page, right? It's always got to get that in there, right? And a lot of other things do that too, right? Which is kind of like, hmm. Like, did I sign up for it's a growth this? hack? It's a good growth hack, right? Some content marketing tool. I don't know. I've always found that to be kind of like an annoying behavior, right? And like, it's sort of like when I see that kind of stuff, I'm like, hmm, this is probably not a very carefully engineered web app, right? Because it's like got a lot of like extraneous logging stuff going on, right? Like probably could spend more time fixing this stuff. Yeah, I'm not sure like a library should use anything other than debug. Yeah. And you should opt in if you want any log output out of some library you picked up. Yeah, but a lot of libraries like to announce that they're there and it seems to work because people still use them, right? So like there's, you know, like obviously it's annoying, but at the same time, maybe somehow that is what the market wants, right? And so cosmically, it's justifiable. I don't know. We get what we deserve. And on that note, let's go ahead and end there. Thank you so much, Brett and Mick, for coming on and chatting. Shocking that we had so much to talk about on logging and air handling. Uh, not really. It was my pleasure. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. We'll definitely have you back. Thanks so much. Thank you, Chris, for, for joining as well. And we will see you next week. That is our show for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Here's something you may not be aware of. We have a podcast called Ship It with Gerhard Lazou, and in addition to the awesome guest interviews that he does, every 10th episode, we turn the lens inward and discuss our open source platform and the work we're doing to continuously improve it. These episodes get pretty raw. We aren't afraid of making mistakes in public. Take a listen. Real-time follow-up. I logged into our AWS console and I checked our current month's S3 costs and I am currently setting up shielding as we speak because we need to, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because we need to get that sucker shielded. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Let's hundreds. Let's give a, Tens, a, a percentage hundreds or thousands. <laughs> our current month billing is up 1900% over Whoa. previous months. Well, that's a lot. Well, we, we normally have like a $20 bill. So I mean, it's, so maybe it's like 150, 200 bucks. Here's where Kaizen gets real. When did we set this up? So we've been on it for... Last Tuesday. A week. So one week. And we've got about $500 in costs. So per week. So that's two grand a month. Really glad you looked into S3, Jerry, during this <laughs> Whereas we were paying $28 a month previously. So roll it back. Roll the whole feature back. <laughs> it's, this is not an improvement, is it? <laughs> I'm literally rolling out the shielding for Fastly right now. I'm hitting activate. Hopefully that'll, that'll probably knock it down to a quarter, maybe a hopefully an eighth. <laughs> I don't know what you would even call this live fixing, live cost savings. Just trying to save us money while you guys are talking. 
Welcome yeah. to ship it. Kaizen. <laughs> Does it work? No. It doesn't. <laughs> Just go back. <laughs> I think this is a terrible idea. That was from episode 40. Continue listening and subscribe to ship it at changelaw.com slash ship it slash 40. Thanks again to Fastly for CDNing for us, to Breakmaster Cylinder for keeping our beats fresh and banging, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. Next up on the pod, Divya and Ali recorded a live show at RemixConf with a bundle of awesome guests. So stay tuned. We'll have that one ready for your enjoyment next week. 